So if you can grab your Bibles, if you've got them, and turn to Job chapter 19. The talk this morning is called, Is There Anyone Who Can Help? And we're going to sort of continue uh, this the-, the themes that are in Job and looking at this, which I reckon is about the heart of the book of Job. It's a really kind of uh, key passage. Um, before we start, sort of people have been asking the question, why, for centuries, and um, if you... Uh, have been following the series, you'll see that there's that hashtag, why, and I, I don't know about you, but have you, I wonder whether you've been, uh, you've actually kind of gone on Twitter and looked that up. Who are Twitter users here? Who is, uh, apart from Peter Smith, who I know, yeah, okay, three of you, okay. Well, anyway, so I went on Twitter, because I'm on Twitter, I've only tweeted about four times, um, not about very interesting stuff, um, and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to put in hashtag why, since that's part of the series. It's kind of up there on the banner. Um, let's see some other things that people have been um, tweeting under the hashtag why. So a few things here. Um, so obviously a girl who's lost someone, woke up finding out sad news of someone she knows and loves, um, and kind of put that hashtag why. See what, some less, less kind of uh, formal ones now. Guy sitting on the train, big, big bloke sits in the middle seat and squishes him. Hashtag why. <laughs> okay, obviously a girl is... Uh, Struggling with a bit of, bit of facial hair and wondering why. <laughs> I don't even know what this one means, but I'll ask Tony Mountainfield later. <laughs> okay, someone suffering a bit of relationship crisis, hashtag why. Okay, a girl getting very cross about the fact that people are looking at what Kate Middleton wears and recycling her clothing and uh, asking that deep question, why. <laughs> okay, one slightly younger here, getting fed up. Okay, and the last one, one for our youth here, should be studying and procrastinating. So. so, people have been asking the question why, either seriously or superficially for years and years. Um, just to quickly rattle through the background to our book on Job, um, it's potentially, possibly the oldest book of the Bible. Um, John Groves kind of said that when he teed up the sermon series. Um, we start with God and Satan having a dialogue and um, God is proud of his servant Job. He's, you know, he looks upon Job. He says, look at this. Look at Job. He, he's a guy that loves me. He follows me. Um, so Satan says, it's only because you kind of provide for him that uh, he follows you. you know, it's only because you give him good stuff. If you took that away, actually, he would fall away from following you. So um, we kind of get this sort of privilege of seeing this kind of dialogue between God and Satan. So God says, okay, you can test my servant Job, just don't touch his life. So God puts constraints on what the, on what the devil can do to Job. And actually that's something that is key to our lives, isn't it? Knowing that actually the devil doesn't have power over our lives. That God has, God has kind of set the, the devil within boundaries and constraints. So... Job loses all his herds, he loses all his, his servants, all his children die in a freak cyclone. Um, but yet Job, Job does not curse God. He says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amazing. So even in these hard times, he's still wanting to lift up the name of the Lord. So even in all this, Job sees the hand of God. <coughs> Amazingly and significantly, his first instinct is to react Godwards um, in that hard times. And I, I really felt that as I was preparing. That's a challenge for me and probably for you as well. Do you always react Godwards in hard times, in good times, or do you go to other things first? God and Satan talk again. And Satan says, well, touch his own life, his flesh and his bones, and he will curse you to your face. So for reasons not clear to us, God sets further boundaries um, to Satan's activities and gives him permission to a further test of Job. 
sickness, painful sores, um, afflict Job, and they're added to his other trials. And if this isn't bad enough, Job's own wife encourages him to curse God and die. Then he has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who kind of give him advice in his suffering. So we fast forward 17-odd chapters of this kind of backwards and forwards with Job's friends giving him advice and Job listening and kind of reacting to them. And we come here to chapter 19, where we're starting this morning. Following an ear bashing from Bildad, where he pretty much says, bad stuff happens to wicked people. So you, Job, are either concealing bad stuff or you're in denial. Either way, you're being punished for what you've done. So we're going to now look at Job chapter 19. I'd actually like to read the whole chapter because it gives us a bit of a flow to the very end bit, which is what I want us to really focus on today. So if you've got your Bibles, the words are up behind you. Let's just read together. Then Job replied, how long will you torment me and crush me with your words? So he's talking to his friends here. Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. Well, that's true for me sometimes, but in a different sense. (laughs) I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. Let's just pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Lord, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Holy Spirit, will you come and bring revelation this morning as we read your word and as we study it? Lord, would you give us eyes to see what you're doing, ears to hear what your spirit is saying, and soft hearts that respond to the challenge of God this morning. In your name, amen. 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 I'm glad, actually, that Jeremy um, 
sorry, not Jeremy, Jonathan this morning, uh, got us to respond in praise and sort of said, oh, we're, we're quite British. Because actually at the end of my preach this morning, I would like you to respond. Um, and actually not just kind of like in, a, in an adult, oh, I'm responding way, but actually physically. So that's a little heads up, just a little challenge that at the end of the message, I'd like us to do something um, small but significant to respond to the message. As we've looked at the book of Job over the the last few weeks, we've seen him desperately trying to live the authentic yet paradoxical life of the true worshipper of God. Those of us who love Jesus here will identify with his struggles. He experiences deep pain, seeing a world that he believes that has been made by a good God, but has become deeply unfair. Also, it's worth noting that in spite of the pain all around him, he does not become cynical but longs passionately for the God who is or who ought to be running this troubled world. The deepest question that Job faces is, is there anyone who can help? And is God for me or against me? These are the questions that we all face, whether we're believers or we're not really sure what we believe. We wrestle with these questions in our lives. The why, which resonates throughout the book of Job, resonates with us too. It's such a common question, but such a real one. Why did he die, says a widower? We had such plan, great plans for our retirement, and now I've got nothing and I'm all, all alone. Why did he get Alzheimer's, says the elderly wife? Why did that have to happen? Why do I have to watch him deteriorating and fading away into absurdity and confusion? Why did I get this job, said another troubled Christian? Why can't, I, why can't this job work out and I do well? I thought God gave it to me. Why didn't I pass this exam, says one of the youth group? Why can't I now go to my first choice of university? Another might ask, why did my parents split up, leaving such a long shadow of pain and insecurity in me? Or to put it another way, for all of our problems, what was going on in heaven to make this happen? Whose purpose was it, if there was a purpose? By whose doing did this happen? Is God for me or against me? What kind of God does what he did to Job, trapping a believer in prison, of suffering, loneliness, pain and misery? Is there anyone who can help? Or is this world cold, heartless and random? Of all Job's laments in the book, I think chapter 19 focuses most sharply on these crucial questions. It leads us to the heart of the book. The problem with these questions, like, is God for me, against me, or is there anyone can help, is that actually, for lots of us, we all know the Sunday school answers, don't we? Yes, there is a God. Yes, Jesus loves us. Yes, God is for all of us who are in Christ. It's the answer we always long to give, isn't it? And yet sometimes it can seem so hard. What I love about Job here is that he's just too honest just to trot out that kind of trite, some of those trite phrases just off pat. But actually, he, he kind of unpacks it a bit more. It's almost like he's saying, well, I can't just rattle off a quick answer without looking totally unreal. So let's explore this morning what Job says. So the first thing Job does in this chapter is he crossly rebukes his friends. He says this, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? Ten times now you've reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. Why is it that these friends, these three friends, seem to be giving such bad advice? I don't know if you've read through the book of Job, but often I can read verses and think, Is that good advice? Is that not? It all seems a bit complicated. And actually, as I was studying this, um, I was reminded of what Grover said when he sort of talked about the three friends. And he said, actually, the best thing they did was stayed silent. And actually, at the very start, when they see how Job is afflicted, they they don't talk. 
No words come out of their mouth. They just kind of sit with him as he wrestles with stuff. However, as soon as they open their mouths, stuff seems to come out that isn't encouraging for Job. They pursue him because they believe the root cause of his trouble is his sin. This is what they mean in verse 28, later on in the chapter, where they say, the root of the trouble lies in him. They will not believe that his suffering could be innocent or even redemptive. There's no place in their system either for undeserved suffering or unmerited grace. Job must deserve what he's going through. They're fairly, fairly binary, fairly black and white. The next thing that Job does is he goes on to describe how he feels God is treating him. After rebuking his friends, he honestly, honestly and gut-wrenchingly describes his situation in vivid language. These are some of the pictures that you might have picked up as we read through the chapter. First thing he says, he, he feels a bit like a trapped animal. Verse 6, it's like he's caught in God's net for unknown reasons and doesn't know how he's got trapped there. The next picture, he says he feels a bit like a criminal in court. It's as if he's been arrested and judged, but without the charges being read out for him, and he doesn't really know how he's got into that situation. In verse 8, he says he feels a bit like a fenced-in traveller. God's blocked his path, and he cannot move. In verse 9, he says he describes that he's a bit like a king who's been dethroned. He's gone from being one of the leading men in the land of Uz to kind of on near a rubbish heap, scratching his sores with broken pottery and with everyone disregarding him. He says he feels, in verse 10, a bit like a structure that has been destroyed or a building that has been pulled down. What once was strong, he was prosperous, he was blessed, he, was, he had every good thing. It's now useless and destroyed. He says, again in verse 10, that he feels like an uprooted tree. God seems to have torn up his roots, torn him up from the ground. And as, as you know, without a root system, the tree will just die. And lastly, in verses 11 and 12, he says he, it's a bit like God has laid siege to him, a bit like he's a city. It's as if God has declared war on him and is treating him like an enemy. These are real honest ways that Job is trying to describe his suffering. Whether you call yourself a believer here or not, or you're just trying to make sense of life, we have all at times felt the struggle between what is going on around here and is there really a God who loves me? I've been part of the church here for about 18 years now, and over the years I've prayed for Christians here who've uh, got terminal illnesses. I've prayed here for children who've been born with, with defects in their bodies. We've prayed as a community, haven't we, for people to get jobs or for people to be healed. And we've seen God's amazing blessing in, a, in, in many ways. But we've also sometimes had times where we've not seemingly seen an answer to our prayers in the way we were expecting. And actually, people have gone to be with Jesus and we praise God that, that they're with him now. But we were interceding and going, oh, why has this happened? Being believers doesn't stop us from encountering the effects of sin in our fallen world. We don't believe in a God, do we, who airlifts us out of every trouble. But we do believe in one who understands how we feel and gives us the strength to stand in the face of trials. The Bible says that God will give us the strength to stand up under every trial. So back to Job. Why should God be treating him in this way? Well, it seems to be a bit of a mystery to Job, doesn't it? But to you and I, from the vantage point of reading the whole book, we can see that there are other forces at work. God isn't punishing Job 
for bad things he's done. Job, as we do, lives in a fallen and corrupt world where Satan prowls around looking for lives to destroy. But then light momentarily breaks in. And here's where we get to the kind of the real core of the chapter that I want us to look at this morning. I wonder whether you've ever been out camping. It's something I loathe and I will say every time I come and preach, but I think it's a result of the fall um, that you know, we have to go camping, but some people love it, don't they? But I wonder if you've ever been out camping, you know, it's dark, you're trying to find something, you haven't, you know, your, your torch isn't working, but you, you kind of like strike a match um, and to, find, to find something, and it glimmers for a little bit, and then it flickers and it goes out, and you're back into the darkness again. Or maybe you've been out uh, in the darkness, um, in, in the pitch black, maybe walking home from someone's house, and, and maybe it's a, there's a storm, and suddenly lightning kind of lights everything up, and you see like a, a, a flicker um, of, um, of light. And I've got a picture of the Grand Canyon here. It's, a, it's an amazing picture. of It was all dark. And then this lightning lights up the entire area. This is a little bit like these verses in Job chapter 19 here. For out of the deep darkness that Job seems to be in, suddenly there breaks this kind of cry that comes from, in, comes from within him. And it's almost like light kind of breaks breaks open into this confusion. It's only brief, and actually in the next few verses, it, kind of, it seems to like sink back into the gloom again, a bit like that match going out, or that lightning stopping. So let's just remind ourselves of those verses, verse 23 to 27. Let's just read them again. It says this, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. For those of us who are familiar with the Bible and know the Bible's overarching story, then the wording of Job's cry takes us straight away to Jesus, doesn't it? It reminds us of Christ. One commentator, as I was kind of preparing for the talk, says it's impossible to read these verses without being conscious of the final interpretation of them in Christ. It's as if God illuminated Job. It's as if he maybe inspires Job to say something prophetically that maybe Job isn't totally aware of the, the depth of what he's saying. But actually we can look back at those verses and are amazed at our Father God that he, he dropped those into Job's mind as he was in the midst of his agony. Even though it's a brief spark in the book, nevertheless, there's something in Job's cry that demands our attention. He starts in those verses by wishing that his words could be written down permanently. Why does he cry this? Maybe it's because he thought that he was going to die before he saw God vindicating him. That he wanted his words to be written down and recorded. That he knew or he trusted or he hoped that his Redeemer lives and that one day he would see him. There's something lovely about the fact that actually this morning we're studying those words that Job cried, that actually that was his wish and his desire, and actually a few hundred odd people are now looking at Job's words. They're recorded down in Scripture for us to read. So let's look even more closely at these verses. So he says this, I know my Redeemer lives. Job, who has hitherto been speaking in sort of frustrated confusion, now speaks with certainty. 
He's convinced that in the midst of his agony, for a moment at least, while there was no one to stand with him in life, when all his friends deserted him, when his acquaintances misunderstood him, he had a kinsman redeemer who is his advocate, his avenger, the one through whom he will be acquitted. I want us just to look at that word redeemer. Verse 25 has this little word, and in the Hebrew, the word redeemer is goel. And this word redeemer is infused with kind of real significance and depth. And uh, as I was thinking about this word, I was thinking about um, Matt Reed, who leads uh, our youth work along one of our youth leaders. And Matt loves his cooking. He loves his um, food. And actually, Matt appreciates it when you've got a sauce that is really rich and infused and deep. So I just want us to look at this word a little bit, because we can kind of say, oh, yeah, he's got a redeemer. But what does that word mean for us? What did it mean for Job? The word meaning redeemer is scattered throughout the Old Testament. Um, the redeemer was someone tied to you by covenant or by agreement. They were usually a relative whose calling it was to stand on your behalf when you were wronged or when you couldn't stand for yourself. In 2 Samuel 14, 7 to 11, is an example of if you were murdered, your redeemer saw that your murderer was punished, that there was justice for that sin that had been committed against you. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 25 to 28, and in Jeremiah 32, 6 to 11. If you, your share in the promised land was at threat, then your Redeemer guaranteed it for you. So if your inheritance, your allotment, the things that you had been promised or you owned were under threat, your Redeemer would stand on your behalf. If your widow was childless, then the Redeemer would give, you, give her a child to continue your line. In every way, the Redeemer, kinsman Redeemer, stood for you when you couldn't stand for yourself. One of the most beautiful illustrations of this picture of Redeemer is in the book of Ruth. Okay, and here's a, here's a picture illustrating part of the story. And some of you might know that in the book of Ruth, in fact, we've, 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 we went through the book recently and the, the sermons are online if you want to catch them, um, Boaz acts as Naomi and Ruth's kinsman Redeemer. He cares for them in their widowhood and becomes for Ruth the husband that she needs. Goel, Redeemer, is also one of the titles that Yahweh gives to himself as well. As he delivers his people from Egypt in the book of Exodus, he brings them into existence as a nation. He reaffirms with them his obligation to them to deliver them from all hostile foes. He says this in Exodus 6.6, I will free you from being slaves to them, And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Job calls out in faith here, asserting that he knows that he has someone who would fight his corner, someone who would deliver him, someone who would be his redeemer. Now, when Grover said that it was potentially the oldest book in the Bible, um, I was reflecting on this word because I was thinking, well, if this book is in the middle of the Old Testament, then there's lots of kind of Old Testament history to infuse this word with. But if it is one of the very oldest books of the Bible, I was just struck again. Isn't that amazing that God, who has this plan for the whole of history, should choose to get Job to cry that word, I have a redeemer, before all that Old Testament history and God proving his faithfulness, redeeming his people, and then 
Jesus coming and redeeming us from our sins. Isn't that amazing that God should just drop that word into Scripture way ahead of everything, and then we, we live in the good of that and can praise him for it. Let's look at the second thing that Job cries. He says this, In the end, he will stand upon the earth. The word meaning rise or stand up here is like a technical term, meaning to stand up as a witness for someone in court. Job is saying that his kinsman redeemer will fulfill his responsibility as a redeemer by giving the decisive testimony in Job's defense. He will one day be vindicated. He believes that he will one day get cleared of all the charges against him. And the third thing that I noted as I read these verses was this bit where Job says, I will see him with my own eyes. Beyond death, Job says, he himself will live. He would see God and see him as his redeemer. Job's momentary glimpse of something greater, however, seems to sort of drain the energy from him. And actually very quickly, kind of the strength seems to leave his body. In verse 27, he says, how my heart yearns within me. Actually, the literal translation isn't heart, it's, it's kind of kidneys. And in Hebrew thought, you're kind of... Um, it's like your, your, your emotions that were, were kind of like in your kidneys. So he was sort of saying, you know, how my, how my kidneys kind of fail me. Um, so is this realistic, though, that Job can kind of go from such a, a sort of gloom to such a, an amazing mountain-toppy sort of moment to then sink back down again? Well, I would say, yes, it is realistic. I'd say, as someone trying to follow Jesus myself, I can have times where I know Jesus is with me. I know that he is for me. I know that I'm not left alone. And then sometimes I can have, I can have a time where I feel I haven't got a clue what's, what's the next step in life is. I, what, why has this happened? And I have to kind of dig into Jesus again. And for those of you that love Jesus will know that this is something that actually is, is part of our lives as believers. I've got a quote by a chap called John Henry Jowett. And I don't know much about him, but um, there he is. Um, handsome-looking guy. Um, But he was once described at at one point as the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world, which is quite an accolade. Um, But this is what he says about his life. It was in a letter that he wrote to a friend one day. He says, I wish you wouldn't think that I'm such a saint. You seem to imagine that I have no ups and downs, but just a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy and equanimity. By no means. I'm often perfectly wretched, and everything appears most murky. So Job, like John Henry Jowett, sees a glimmer in the dark. For us, since Jesus has come, we've actually got more illumination than that. And I, sort of the way I'd like to see it is a bit like the, you know, the vista of the Grand Canyon by day. Actually, we've got more illumination. We can see these verses and read them through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so actually, I want us to re-look at those three points again. But what does that mean for us in the light of knowing that Jesus came into this world as our Redeemer? There's a phrase that I'm often reminded of when I'm reading the Bible, when I'm struggling through Old Testament passages sometimes. And you might have heard it. It says, the old in the new, sorry, the new in the old concealed, the old in the new revealed. And it's talking about the two, Old Testament and the New Testament, saying that actually 
when you read the Old Testament, there are bits of the story of the New Testament hidden and woven all the way through the Old Testament. And then when you read the New Testament, there are amazing links to what God has done in the Old Testament that's been revealed. And, you know, we, we, can, we marvel sometimes, don't we, when we dig in a bit deeper and we go, wow, God, you were planning that right back there. So let's look back at these verses in the light of the New Testament, in the light of what Jesus came to do, and let's see if that gives us more illumination on these verses. So, as followers of Jesus Christ, for those of you who love him and know him, what can you say that we know? Well, the first thing, we can say this. If you know Jesus, we can say this. We know that our Redeemer lives. Jesus is our kinsman Redeemer. There is a sovereign Redeemer who lives, who lived, and will one day vindicate every believer and declare him or her to be justified from all sin. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the price that was on our heads. We were redeemed by him. Like a slave that had a price on their head, that price was paid in full to free us from the punishment that should have been ours. The penalty for sin is death. The Bible says that. It's very clear. When Jesus came, he didn't dumb down God's standards. He didn't go, do you know what? Now I've come. You can muck up a little bit and it'll be all right. I'll fudge it for you. No, God still says that the punishment, the wages of sin are death. But that punishment that should have been on our heads was put upon Jesus. Jesus redeemed us and paid the price so that we can go free. Hebrews says this, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. Do you know what? Jesus is not dead. Jesus was not just a nice historical character who laid down a bit of kind of Zen truths to get us through life. You know, Jesus rose from death. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is living and he is interceding. He is speaking between us and his heavenly Father on our behalf. Another verse from Hebrews, it says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. How amazing is that? Jesus understands our sin. He understands when we struggle with the whys. But actually, he did not sin. He went through death for us. And, and he can, he's big enough to take on board our worries, our questions, our prayers. Do you know what? Cancer isn't big to God. Jesus isn't worried about cancer. Jesus isn't worried about death. The Bible says there's no sting now in death for those who trust in Jesus. Actually, he is greater than everything else. And at the end, we're going to respond. Ben's going to lead us in a song, Jesus is greater. You are greater than any other. And actually, we're going to respond by coming up to the cross that's going to be on my, on my left here. And I'm going to encourage you to actually write down on a post-it note, either a prayer of thanks, either a question, a why question, because God is big enough, and we're going to stick them on the cross to my side here. So there's just a little heads up that I'm expecting a little bit of movement at the end of this talk. Lots of British sitting there going, well, actually, I've not got anything to say to talk to God about. Actually, you know, I don't want to guilt trip you going, well, there's no one in this room who's got nothing to talk about. and put on the... But actually, let's respond to God in honesty. There's actually something, Steve reminded me this morning, actually, there's something 
something in physically walking over and doing something um, that kind of sometimes seals something spiritually. I feel sometimes in baptism, actually physically going down into the waters of baptism, there's something in that process. It's not a magical ceremony, but there's something in it. By declaring our faith in front of others, God does something spiritually in our hearts. So we're just going to do that um, this morning. Okay, just like the Goel, the Redeemer, God punishes people for their sins that they have committed against us. So people might have sinned against you. God will vindicate you. God will punish those sins. But soberingly, God would punish us for the sins that we've committed. But the amazing truth is that that punishment has been put on Jesus Christ in our place. Just like the Goel, the Redeemer, Jesus guarantees us a place in the promised land. Okay? It's not on a cloud playing a harp in a big nappy, but actually he promises us that we are one day going to be with him. We are going to be in a restored heavens and earth. We are going to be together with other believers from all around the world, from all time. We have a guarantee. Jesus says there is a room for you. Do you know Jesus as your saviour? Do you know that you've got a room allotted for you? Do you know that when you die, you are going to meet God face to face? Just like the Goel, the Redeemer, Jesus stood for us when we were and are helpless to stand ourselves. Do you know what? There was nothing that we can do to pay off the debt of sin that is on our heads. No good works, no giving money to the poor, no you know, putting someone up for the night. There's nothing that we can do to pay off that debt. Mother Teresa could not pay off the debt that she, she owed to God. One sin is enough to separate a holy God from sinful man. How amazing then that Jesus should be the solution to that and come down to take our place. Hallelujah. So some questions, really, from that, just, even just from that verse. Have you given your life to Jesus? Do you know that your sins can be and have been forgiven at the cross? Do you know that your life is redeemed in full by Jesus, the Redeemer? Do you know that there is someone who can help? We know that he has stood upon the earth. Here's the second bit, the second verse. He has stood upon the earth, and he will one day come again. Hallelujah. How can we be sure of this? Because there was once a real believer who became a man, who walked this earth, and who, like Job, was God-attacked, and who suffered vicious terrors, a blameless believer who experienced a terrible death, and did not deserve a, a terrible death he did not deserve, and whom the Redeemer God vindicated publicly on the third day when he raised him from the dead. Just like Job longed for that vindication, we know that God vindicated Jesus Christ. You know, he hung on the cross for you and for me. He did not open his mouth to hurl a torrent of abuse at his Roman executors. He bled and died for you and me. And God, he didn't just die, but God the Father raised him up on the third day for us. He vindicated him. Jesus proved that he had led a sinless life on our behalf. It is precisely the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us the assurance that Job's confidence was not wishful make-believe, but sure and certain hope. The Father stood upon, it's a bit like the Father stood upon Christ's tomb and acted as his redeemer to vindicate him by his resurrection. And he is willing and able to save each one of us. In John, it says of Jesus, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. By that unveiling 
of God, we are brought to a new understanding of God, forever, how he forever represents us and how he argues our case in the courts of heaven. This same God will stand upon the grave of every man and woman in Christ to act as our redeemer. And on the last day, we will stand vindicated and justified by him, by his grace. He is our redeemer. He is our goel, pleading our cause, standing for us where we could not. In Timothy, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Have you accepted that you're forgiven for your sin? Or are you still holding on to things that actually Jesus has redeemed you for? Maybe this morning it would be good just to scribble that onto a post-it note as a prayer of repentance and stick that on the cross. Do you stand confidently in Christ before God, knowing that he pleads your case in heaven at this very moment? You might want to write a prayer of thanks and praise that he is standing on your behalf. And the, the third thing that Job says that we want to, I want to look at through the lens of Christ is this. We will see him with our own eyes. Hallelujah. Is that pie in the sky before you die? Is it a faint hope for those in need? Is religion, is Christianity just a crutch for when things are hard? Well, actually, the Bible says this. In Romans, God says this of himself. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. How amazing. Are you going to bow the knee to God in this life and then meet him in friendship and love and jubilation? Or are you not going to bow the knee to him in this life? Because one day, each one of us, the Bible says, will face him face to face. And again in the Bible, at the very end of the book of, Revela- in the book of Revelation, God says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. As we hear Job's faith in an unseen God in these words, we also can bring our why questions to the revealed Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not promised that we will know the answers to all the questions this side of death, but we do know that we have a Redeemer who stands in our place, who walks our walk with us, who died on our behalf, and who will vindicate us. Do you trust God with your future? Do you believe that you have a saviour who cares and can help? In the midst of life, whether we know why or not, we can know his presence with us. In Matthew, Jesus says, surely I am with you until the end of the age. Whether like Job, we're suffering as a result of others' sins against us, whether we're suffering directly on account of our own sin and our own wrong choices, whether the devil is trying to attack us or whether we're just suffering from the effects of living in a fallen and broken world. Jesus, as our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, wants us to trust him in all areas of our lives.